I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We return here to the book of 1 John where we left off a month ago during the month of January. We devoted our, our time on Sunday mornings to the theme of prayer. It's really culminated last Sunday as we had our annual meeting. We thought about all the things that God did and His provision for us. We thank the Lord we, we prayed. But during the month of January, we reflected upon prayer and its importance to our own lives and to the life of our church. And my hope is that day by day we would grow in daily dependence upon the Lord in, in all things. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's, that's coming to God daily, seeking our bread for today. I had a great illustration of that last night, yesterday, as, as yesterday morning actually. Um, I was responsible for feeding our dog in the morning. And uh, Steffi had that responsibility and she was gone. And so um, uh, she gets the same thing our autumn does every Sunday, every, every morning. She gets an egg. She gets a spoonful of yogurt. She gets some kind of omega supplement to help her with her tear stains. And she gets some dog food. And as I was preparing that, I looked back and there she was. Just watching me. Her, her glands salivating, kind of licking it up. And, and I've seen this many times before. But every day, every morning, she just sits there and waits for her food to be prepared. And her, her mind is like fixed and gazed upon us, whoever's preparing the food, in order to, to get it for her. And we, we provide it for her then. And I'm just thinking about what a great picture that is about daily trust and dependence. She's totally dependent upon us. Uh, last night I, I let her out and she was, boom, right after a rabbit, but she's got that electrical fence, so she, she stopped, but she, she would never kill a rabbit in a bazillion years. This little tiny yappy dog is kind of what she is, but she would, she would never do that. She's totally dependent on us. Out in the wild, she'd die. And so likewise, I just say, church family, let, let's be like that with God. That, that we have such strength to be sufficient of ourselves, but let's, let's be sufficient dependent upon God in every way because we are more dependent upon him than we think you're just an accident away from something happening that you're going to realize your dependence so let's realize our dependence upon him every, every day so that's what we have been looking at trying to reinforce here at Rock Valley Bible Church just be a praying church really trusting him today though we return to first John right where we left off we went through the first four four chapters and now we've come to chapter five verses one through five I want to read them for you Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. These five verses contain three themes. There's the theme of love. The theme of faith. There's the theme of obedience. Faith, love, and obedience. Now, these aren't anything new to... Uh, First John, 
In fact, throughout the entire book, they've been sprinkled in there like all, all three of them have been. Um, in fact, all three of them are together in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Look, turn over there. Look, look, look there. And this is his commandment, implying obedience, that we believe, meaning faith, in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. There's love, just as he commanded us. There's obedience. Faith, love, and obedience. They're all there. God's command for us is to believe. God's command for us is to love. God's command for us is to obey. And these three characteristics are, are characteristic of every follower of Jesus Christ. A genuine Christian will have faith in the Son of God. A genuine Christian will have love for God and love for others. A genuine Christian will obey God's commands. If you fail in any of those qualities... Well, you expose yourself as one who's not a a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But you identify these qualities in your life and you can have assurance that you indeed are a child of God. In fact, that's what John has been getting at the entire letter. It's all about assurance. It's all about knowing that you have eternal life. Right. First John 5, 13, repeated almost every Sunday that we are here. In 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. And one of the ways this Sunday, this morning, is by looking at your life. Do you have faith? Do you have love? Do you have obedience? You have those things all and you can say, yes, I have eternal life. And, and those are the three tests that actually John has been laying out in his whole book. Each test that he, he lays out, falls in line of one of three categories. It's either a, a faith test in the, in the true God, or as we have called it, like a doctrinal test, or it is the love test, or it is the obedience test, right? Obedience, love, doctrine, old, O-L-D. So if you want to remember that, right? The old test here in First John, the old test. Obedience, love, and doctrine. And the test goes something like this. Are you obeying God? Are you obeying the Lord? Well, if you are, then you can have assurance that you have eternal life. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. How do you know whether you've come to know Him? Well, you look at your obedience, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You can say it this way, right? And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we obey Him. Whoever says, I know Him, but doesn't obey Him is a liar. The truth isn't in Him. But whoever obeys Him, in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. See, it's not what you say that makes it true. It's what you do that makes it true. And as you obey the Lord, you give evidence that you are a child of God. The love test works exactly the same way. Are you loving God? Are you loving other people? And you can have assurance if you are that you have eternal life. And if you are not loving God or loving other people, then you won't have assurance you have eternal life. Any assurance that you might have is just false assurance. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 
Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, there it is. Clear as day. We know that we've passed out of death into life. We know that we have eternal life if we love the brothers. Or it's because we love the brothers that we know that we have this. The, the love test. If we are loving, then we know that we have eternal life. But if you don't love, you hate your brother, you do not have eternal life. Regardless of what you say. See, it's not about saying that you love them. It's about demonstrating and really knowing that you do. And it's a matter of looking at your life and saying, am I, am I really give, am I other-centered in my life? Because when, when God works a work in someone's heart, He creates them to be other-centered rather than self-centered. Or the doctrinal test, the obedience, love, doctrine, OLD. It works the same way. Do you believe in the real Jesus? Do you believe in the Jesus, the power to save? Or are you believing in some fictitious Jesus, some made-up Jesus who has no power to save? If you're believing in the real Jesus, He has the power to save, and you have eternal life. But if you believe in the one that doesn't even exist, you cannot have assurance that you have eternal life. That's the, the doctrinal test. And the clearest place for that is, is chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So you have someone here who's denying the real Jesus exists. You're denying the real God, maybe distorting him in some way. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You deny the Son, you don't have the Father. You confess the Son, you have the Father also. The two are one and the same. So if you confess, do you confess that Jesus is the Christ? Then you have the promise. As verse 25 says, this is the promise you made to us, eternal life. But if you don't confess, or if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, then you don't have the Father. If you don't have the Father, you don't have eternal life. This is the, the old test. And today, really, these tests that we're looking at are, are much the same. We're, we're calling the doctrine test faith because it's, it's belief that Jesus is the Christ. It's belief in the Son. It's not doctrine, belief in the right Son. But we're having the other two to be the same. So it's faith, love, and obedience. So if you're looking for an acronym today, it's not old. It's, what is it today? Flow. <laughs> Good job. It's flow today. So today's, today's flow. We have three questions. Do you have faith? Do you have love? Do you have obedience? Right? Do you believe in the Christ is my first question. Right here, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, when you use the term Christ there, it's talking about the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior. Whoever believes... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the one who came to save, has been born of God. And there, right there is the gospel. The wonderful gospel. It's to those who believe who are born of God. It's not through works. It's not through ritual. It's not through efforts on your own. It's through faith alone, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Or as this text says, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God. Now notice that John's picking up the same terminology that Jesus used in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Now he's very familiar with that because John wrote that account actually. Right? It's in John chapter 3. And he knew all about that interaction. In that chapter, Jesus speaking with Nicodemus and Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
That is being born from above or, or being born of God. Unless you're born from above or born of God, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus talking about just being born, some kind of change in your life that's comparable to being born all over again. And, and, it, and it's so mysterious, Nicodemus didn't understand it. And, and he questioned Jesus, said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And it was mysterious to Nicodemus. And I'll say the new birth is mysterious to us as well. It's like, well, what exactly does it mean? Like, how, how are you changed? Like, what, what exactly is, is changing there? But John, in this verse, seems to diminish all of that mystery. Look again at, at verse, verse 1 and pay attention to the grammar. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is the Christ, has been born of God. So in other words, if you believe, it means that you've been born again. And so you say, well, what does it mean to be born again? It means really just that you're believing. You're in a believing state because those in unbelieving states have not been born of God. They are, as 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 says, they are children of the devil. Or maybe it's one of these verses in here, chapter 3, verse 11, 12, 13, one of those, the children of the devil. You're either the child of God or you're a child of the devil. If you're believing, it means that you have been born of God. Because the being born of God is what gives you the strength to believe. It's what this passage is saying. It's impossible for you to believe Jesus is the Christ unless you've been born of God. So do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe He's the Savior? Do you believe He's the Messiah? Do you evidence some kind of change in your life because it's not just it's not just a, an assent or you're saying you're believing it's going to change your life and many of this room of us in this room have experienced such a change where we're once we simply saw this world right we're living in in this one dimension and then god broke into our life and we saw him as big and glorious and now we we live in a spiritual dimension where we understand right and wrong we understand god we understand christ and how christ jesus came died upon a cross for our sins and how we just believe in him and it's not our works of righteousness but it's according to his mercy that we are saved and we see that and it changes us and it gives us new desires and a new heart god spoke to israel and said i'm going to replace your your hard heart with a heart of flesh there's a soft heart and there's the idea is that we we once were hardened to our sin but now we are soft and pliable and and open to god because god has given us these new desires and we want to to live for him, it's because God has worked this change in our life. And, and, and one evidence of change is faith and trusting and believing. And I just say this, John so wants us to believe. He so wants us to believe. You remember the purpose for the gospel of John? John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It's the end of this biography about Jesus. And uh, John says, okay, I've told you all this stuff about Jesus and his life. And, and, and here's really why I've told you that. Because I've left some things out and I put some things in. But the things I've put in have been intentional of what I put them in, why I put them in. And he says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You can read about a lot of other signs that Jesus did that aren't included in John's gospel. It's included in Luke and Matthew and Mark's gospel. But he said that these are written... That is, everything in the Gospel of John. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So by trusting in Christ, you then do have eternal life. 
In other words, right, John said there's, there's much about the life of Jesus that could have been mentioned and could have been recorded. But John says, I recorded these things so you might know for sure that Jesus is the Christ. So just, just think about that. When, when John wrote down about Jesus turning the water into wine, it was with an intent that you see how stunningly powerful this man is. And he might believe that he's the Christ. Or when Jesus, when he wrote about healing of the official's son who was, who was sick and near death. In John's mind, he's, he's saying, look at how powerful Jesus is that he can heal someone without even touching them. With just, just saying, yes, he will be well from miles away. Or when he wrote about the healing of the paralytic at the pool called Bethesda. He wrote that specifically so that we might see and marvel at the healing power of Jesus and say, wow, this, this man is different. He can take this man who's been debilitated, can't walk for 38 years, can't ever get in that pool, can't be healed. And Jesus says, take up your pallet and walk. Or when Jesus, when John wrote about the feeding of the, the 5,000, from just the, the little bread and the, the two fish and the five little loaves of bread and, and fed 5,000 people, we're supposed to look at that and marvel and say, what kind of person is this? Surely this is the Christ. Surely this is the Messiah who's come. And, and John calls us, wrote that so that we might, might believe. Or when he wrote about the blind man who was healed. So likewise, we're supposed to think about Jesus is the one who can make blind to see. Even Isaiah spoke about that a bit. So this, this is the Messiah. Or when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth and the man had been dead for four days. Decaying in the tomb. Stood up and came. And John says, I write that so that you might marvel at who Jesus is. And you might believe that he's the Christ. And then through your faith and believing, God works his work and we are saved. We have eternal life. But John also not just recorded the, the miracles he did. He also recorded the, the statements and the teachings about Jesus about how Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. And John's like, see what he said? Eat of him so you might not ever hunger again. Or when John recorded that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Right? See the light and follow the light. Don't walk anymore in darkness. Or when John recorded Jesus saying, I am the door. John wrote that so he might go through the door into heaven itself. When John recorded how Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, you might see he's a trustworthy Savior to trust. Or when John recorded how Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, realize that our eternal life does indeed come through him. That he indeed is the one through whom we can have everlasting life. And John so wants us to hear Jesus say that and believe. When John recorded how Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He wants us to realize that. And to realize that we can get to the Father through Jesus and Jesus alone. Or when John recorded how Jesus said, I'm the true vine. You realize how you need to be connected with him to be connected with God. Or on top of that, not only the miracles, the I am statements, but also his discourses or his prayer, or his high priestly prayer. You realize that Jesus prayed like no other prayed. Or his interaction with the Pharisees. You see how he interacted with the Pharisees. You've got you to see that, that he had the authority like none other. And all that 
leading us. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you might have life in his name. And so I just say, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, if you do, according to this test, you've been born of God. Let's go to my second point. Not only do you believe in the Christ, do you have the love of the Father? Second half of verse 1 through verse 2. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God and we love God and obey his commandments. Now the the logic of these verses go like this. If you love the father, you will love his children. And if you love, and you will love the children of God, right, when you love the father. It's kind of like like goes back and forth, kind of uh, around and around. Everyone who loves the father... Loves whoever's been born of him. Loves the children of God. Loves those who are fellow believers. And by this we know that we love the children of God, right? When we love God. So when we, we love God, we'll love his children. We love the children, we'll, we'll love God. It's somewhat, somewhat circular. That's why I framed my second question. Do you have the love of the Father? Which loves God and loves other people. Loves other fellow believers, particularly is what he's talking about here. In other words, is God's love evident in your life? That's what we're talking about. That's the essence of what he's, he's getting at. He's just saying, look at your life. Do you see faith? That's a good thing. It's evidence you're born of God. But here, do you see love? Are you loving other believers? Well, that's a good thing. That's an evidence that God's love is in you. And so you say, okay, here. Well, what does that look like? Because he, even someone who doesn't have any interest in God has a measure of, of love in them. I would say, yes, that's true. And this is where it's difficult to define. Like, who says, no, I don't have any love? <laughs> right? No. People will, will claim to have love, but, but it is a, a distinguishing mark that we should not be like Cain who hated his brother, right? Do you, do you love or do you hate? Right? And even the exclusion there is that hating anyone. Or, or do you love? Do you give yourself? And so you say, well, what does it look like? Let's just think, in a marriage, love looks like self-sacrifice. Love looks like considering the needs of your spouse above your own. It looks like cleaning and vacuuming. It looks like verbalizing love for your spouse. It, it looks like figuring out what they would like and then doing what they would like. Not necessarily even that because you like it, but because you know that they would like it, and you like it because they like it, and so you do it out of joy. That's, that's love. It's not self-sacrifice, doing what you might not do in consideration for other people. And I think how appropriate on a Valentine's Day that we as a nation, indeed, we as a world on this day, February 14th, set aside to celebrate marital love. Husbands, are you loving your wives? Wives, are you loving your husbands? Because marital love will express itself in words and in actions. What does it look like? So that, that's self-sacrifice in a marriage. What about in a friendship? What does self-sacrifice look like in a friendship? Well, you look like extending yourself for the sake of others. Like serving one another even when it's inconvenient. So someone's calling you up. Say, hey, can you? my car broke down. Can you come get me? Well, where are you? Well, I'm about a half hour away. Sure, I'll come. You know, and you go. 
or when, uh, uh, this was my case, I had a furnace go out on Christmas morning. Oh, Garth. Where's Garth? Garth isn't in here right now, is he? But Garth was gracious and he stopped by on Christmas morning last year. Otherwise, we're cold. And, but he sacrificed for us. That is what love looks like. Uh, love looks like encouraging. Um, you know, this world's a pretty discouraging place. And we need encouragement. We need help. We need hope. Encouraging one another with, with God-centered affirmation of one's gifts. Guy, I really appreciate how God has made you. I really appreciate how God is working in you in this way. Just lifting others up with words. Or even by giving gifts. Just by saying, hey, you're my friend. I got this. Here, well, you can use it. Because I see that you have a need. And I can fulfill it. Uh, a friendship looks like laying down your life for your friends. Jesus said, greater love is known than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Are you laying down your life for your friends? Are you caught up in your own ways? Are you able to give towards others? What does it look like, say, in a church where you can't be like, like close friends with everyone in the church? Is it, it gets too big. It's, it looks like self-sacrifice. I mean, that's what love is. Love is self-sacrifice. And, and for this, here's what I want to do. I want to just read, read Tony Payne again. He's just got to just plug in this away. Um, he says this about loving at church. I'll just read this. Loving the people around you at church can also be expressed in the little things, like the thoughtfulness that notices the person next to you doesn't have a Bible and offers to share one with them. It is expressed in a servant-hearted attitude that does whatever it can to help others around them. For example, what do you normally do if you notice that church is a bit hot and stuffy? My tendency is to get a bit grumpy and then complain afterwards to someone in authority. But the loving, servant-hearted thing to do would be to quietly slip out of my seat and go open a window. Or find someone who can check on the ventilation has been turned on. See, love sees a need and tries to meet it. Rather than seeing a problem and doing nothing about it. Or worse, complaining about it. Another obvious example of loving thoughtfulness is in our care for newcomers. If we see someone who looks new, we should look after them. They're a guest at our family gathering. It's not the pastor's gathering. It's God's gathering and it's our gathering. And just as God has so generously welcomed us, so we should welcome our guests. We should sit next to them, perhaps as a result of praying about where to sit. And we should be attentive to them, helping them find their way during the service. They might need help in following along or they might need to be introduced to the nursery or the children's programs. We should treat newcomers like honored guests that they are. We should especially be looking out for newcomers and caring for them in that after-church time that is really not after-church. So, just those are some ways about loving others, maybe that you're not close friends with, but you have acquaintance with the people in the church. We are tied together as fellow members of Rock Valley Bible Church. And I just say, are, are these sorts of things in your life? If so, you can be encouraged that love of, of the Father is in you. And you can be encouraged that you pass the love test. And passing the love test will lead you to the assurance that you have eternal life, which is what John is writing at, chapter 5, verse 13. Anyway, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You might know that you have eternal life, and it's your love, you have confidence and assurance 
that you have eternal life. Well, my final question this morning. Do you believe that Jesus, do you believe in the Christ? Do you have love of the Father? Here it is thirdly, do you obey? Do you obey? Now, in many ways, this is an extension of love because where John begins in verse 3, look at that there. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, we already saw obedience back in verse 2 when we love God and obey his commandments. And now he's explained what this obedience. This is the love of God when we keep his commandments. And, and these, th- these three things, faith, love, and obedience, they're all, they're all like tied together. Like you can't have one without the other because faith will express itself in love and love will express itself in obedience. Obedience is an outward expression of faith. And they all like, they all like go together. So it's not, they're, they're all like in one package. So it's not as if we go through these tests where you can kind of isolate them. It's more like a, more like a pattern. And this is where many people, loving people in the world, are, are disqualified because they have a, um, some kind of human love, which, which helps. But there is some motive there that's other than a, a divine motive because they don't have faith at all. But you've got to deal with them all together in a big picture, like a big package. So let's, let's look at obedience here in 3, 4, and 5. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Boy, that's huge right there. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So you see faith kind of overlapping there. You see um, overcoming the world there, which is talking about walking righteously. And, And here John describes... Not just obedience in general, but a, a specific type of obedience. He's talking about the obedience that in, is not burdensome. He's talking about the obedience of love. He's talking about the obedience that's motivated by love. See, there's a, a difference between a, an obedience of love and an obedience of servitude. Or an obedience of submission, whatever. Um, in other words, right? You obey your boss for different reasons than you obey, say, your father. Um, I'm just thinking about in the, the best world, you obey your boss because you want a paycheck. And in the best of worlds, you obey your father because you want to honor him. And there's, there's a lot going on inside that's different about those things. And see, when it comes to the Lord, it's that honoring sort of obedience that, that he wants See, God doesn't want to obey him because he is our boss. So he's not saying, oh, you got to do this, right? Because he has all the authority. I'm the king in charge. Though he is, he's the sovereign creator, the ruler of all things. Right? He, he's the one to whom all of our allegiance is due. If, if he would determine to do so, if he'd take his spirit and his breath from us, we'd be dust like that. So we do, and that's part of what fearing the Lord is as well, but... We need to obey from, from love. We need to see that, that God's commands are so good and trustworthy and hopeful and, and helpful that we want to. You, you know, there are many examples in the Bible about those who were obeying wrongly. Like, like I think about Isaiah chapter 1. It speaks about a, a people who were doing the sacrifices... They, they, were, they were doing the things that God said, but he hated them. 
He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, who's required of you of this trampling of my courts? Bring your vain offerings. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. So they were externally obedient, but from wrong hearts. Matthew 15 speaks about the Pharisees, how they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. If anyone who kept the, the laws, it was the, it was the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul said before he was converted, he said, as to the law, I was found blameless as a Pharisee. He said, because they kept all these laws, but they, they did so with the wrong heart. They didn't do so with the heart of love. I'm not sure they did so with a heart of intimidation. They just did so externally. And maybe you have seen your children do that. You've asked them to do something and they they stomp off and they do it. And and when you question them and say, "Um, that's not right. They're like, what? I'm doing what you're telling me to do. You know full well that they're not doing what you're telling them to do. They're doing it from a a wrong heart. And, and, And parents, seek to do what you can to... To motivate your children with love. I, I know one of the questions I often have asked my children over the years, what's the loving thing to do? What's the loving thing to do? If, if dad asked you something to do, what's, what's the loving thing to do is to do so with love. How do you treat your brothers? It's a loving thing to do. But we need to obey out of love. And we find that it says here, if you're doing that right, his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, when, when God tells you something to do, you find a delight in doing them. Because when you hear a command of God, it can come of two ways. I mean, it, it can be a command and you're like, oh man, I, I can't do that, really? Or I have to do that, really? Rather, it's the other way. It's like, I get to do that? I get to do that? You're protecting me from this. Thank you for protecting me. And, and that's, that's what walking into church should be like. Tony Payne doesn't exactly um, hit this so much. But I, I liken coming to church like a day at the beach. Okay? A day at the lake. Where you go out, you bring your picnic lunch, and you, you sit down, and there's the slight lapping of the water, and the sun's beating down, and you get hot, and you, and you jump in the water, which isn't so cold because it's late August, and the, the sun has warmed it up. And you just... You love going to the beach because it's a place of refreshment. It's a place of joy. It's a place of happiness. Is it a burden? Oh, we got to go to the beach. Oh, man, I kind of want to go to the beach. Or maybe better, Disney World. Kids, we got to go to Disney World. Oh, no, I don't want to go to Disney World. (laughs) Does that that happen? What? We're going to Disney World? Woohoo! That's, see, that's not a burdensome... Okay, kids, get ready. We're going to Disneyland. You, they're ready like that. They're ready in a snap, right? But not so if they view it as drudgery. And so likewise, walk into church, being part of God. God says, I want you to assemble together for mutual encouragement, for joy. You're like, yes, I get to go. That's a non-burdensome command. Now, we all know Sunday mornings that are burdensome, Right? Like you don't want to go or something's up and you can just easily like, well, 
no, this is there. But I tell you, if, if, if there's a joy and there's a, a love and there's a non-burdensome way there, you, you'll find a way to get there, right? Because when the heart is willing, the feet are swift. Well, I think a great illustration of this is one that John Piper uses often. And uh, Valentine's Day, I'm, I'm sure I've used it here again, but I will use it because... He has said he used it often, and I say I will use it often because it works so well. You think about Valentine's Day, and um, you know, say husbands, you go out tonight, you, whatever. Your your wives are at home, and you, you're going to run some kind of errand today, and and you you say, oh, Valentine's Day, I need to get my wife flowers, and so you go to the grocery store and you get flowers, and then and then you hold them behind your back, and and you come in, and you say, honey, honey, look what I have. And she says, oh, Steve, you shouldn't have. He said, well, it's my duty. <laughs> That's a burden. Like, it's my duty. This is like what I have to do. Okay, but, but here it changes everything, right? When you, when you go, okay, it's a Sunday afternoon, and you're out, you're running some errands, and you go to that floor stop, and you see the flowers, and then you, then you grab them, and, and you're taking them home, and you come, and you say, here's honey. And she says, she says, oh, they're beautiful, Steve, you didn't have to. He says, I saw the flowers, and I just couldn't, I, I thought, like, I know we're tied on the budget, but I just couldn't help but spending this on you because I want to make you happy because I know how much you'll like this. And, and then there's... Right? That's a delight. There's the non-burdensome command. And that's how all of God's commandments should be. Non-burdensome some love that just, that just overflows and that, and that gives. That's the sort of obedience that the Bible's always talking about. Always condemning the, the, the official and the outside sort of pharisaical, yep, look at how good we are. But rather, it, it, he commands us to rejoice always and be joyful always, and so receiving all of his commands in that way as well. And, and, and having a perspective of like, like that um, helps to see that it's not of works, right? They, they write before God, but it's more because I'm justified, I, I want to obey. You remember in Romans chapter 6, when Paul was speaking forth the marvelous grace of God, and then someone says, well, well what about sin, right? If... if if, um, if we continue in sin and grace abounds in sin, well, should we continue in sin? And Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And, and the idea there is that, is that I've died to sin. It, it's past. Christ has forgiven me and now I have a love for him. And now I pursue him with a, a love. And that will always pursue itself in an upward trajectory of righteousness and joy and obedience. But there are many who think that such things are works added to the gospel. I received an email about a month ago from a guy through the website. And, and he said this, Quick question came up as I was checking out your church. I see that your senior pastor attended the master's seminary. Does your church teach lordship salvation? A la John MacArthur. I strongly oppose MacArthur's teaching and identify with the free grace side of the argument. Would I fit in with your church? If your response is more than one or two sentences, I'll know something is wrong. So for both our sakes, please keep it short. Thanks. All right. So I prayed about this one for a while and thought, I ought to do 
how can I put it down into two sentences so he doesn't know what's wrong? But see here, he, he thought that, oh, if you speak about the gospel of grace, that it's all that, then sin's going to abound, right? And we can, we, we can, we can have it that way. And he, he's thinking about, you know, it, it is just of grace. It doesn't have to do with works of righteousness. See, not at all. And so it's all of grace. And see, all MacArthur is saying, I, I think, is that everything First John's saying that's just fruit in your life. So here's what I said. I said, I have recently been preaching verse by verse through First John, which contains a bunch of verses like this. Quote, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then I put a bunch other things in parentheses, a bunch of other passages in First John that basically say the same thing. That was my worst. And my second sentence was this. My guess is that you would strongly oppose our teaching and would not fit in with our church. That's what I told him. Just because he, he's got this, this grace mentality that says, oh, no, we're just saved by, by belief. But missing this obedience because he doesn't understand what joyful obedience really is. And what following after that is. And I just said, hey, here's a scripture. And the last thing we want is, is contention here, right? I'm not going to persuade. I'm just saying, hey, this is what it is, but helped him deal with scripture. But fails to understand the role of faith and conquering sin. As those are on the, the faith side, don't. Don't understand that if you truly believe, it's going to make an effect. And that's what John is getting at in verses 4 and 5. So we look at just quickly towards the end here. Everyone who has been born of God, right? And everyone born of God believes, right? But everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. So you got to think, what does it mean to overcome the world? And I think what it means to overcome the world is to walk in righteous behavior, walk in an obedient sort of way. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. This is, this is the victory over our sin that's overcome the world. And what is it? It's our faith. So, see, there's a big discussion today in the evangelical world about sanctification. And, and how is it that we're sanctified? How is it that we're made righteous? And there's lots of different theories about it. Some, some think that it's, it's work and it's effort. Some think it's all God of grace. You just kind of jump. Some, like even John, I think, is emphasizing, right, just believe and just look to Christ and because this is, this is the work of God, that you believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work within us. And so we realize it's God's grace entirely working in us, but it's us laboring and going on. But it's our faith-fueled sanctification is what's being talked about here because when you're born of God, you overcome the world. And what's the victory to overcome the world? It's our faith that comes. So we're coming back really to the beginning of these circular things. John says the exact same thing in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Because if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 1, you're believing that He's the Christ. If you're believing He's the Christ and you're you're born of God. If you're born of God, then you're overcoming the world. And who is the one that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? And so the, the question really here is, and the obedience is, what's your relationship with the world? Are you overcoming the world? Or is the world overcoming you? And how easy is it for the world to overcome us? Because we're flesh and blood. God knows that. But John called us, First John 2, when we were back there a couple months ago. He says, do not love the world. 1 John 2.15, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the world, it's because the love of the Father is not in you. But if the love of the Father is in you, then you will overcome the world and there will be a, a, a holy hatred towards the things of the world and you'll love the things of Christ. 
So there's our test today. Faith, love, and obedience. And my hope and my prayer is that we pass that test and that we know that we have eternal life. And if you're struggling in those areas, you might cast doubt on your salvation. And that's precisely what John wants to do. So look at your life and trust in Christ because that's the power that overcomes the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray in your grace that you would strengthen us and help us, O God, for these days. Father, I pray that we would be people people filled with faith. God, that we would believe in you with all of our hearts for all of our lives. That our lives would be filled with love. Love for you. Love for others. God, that we would see and know a measure of obedience in our life. So help us, O, O God, we pray. God, to give us proper assurance. God, give us assurance that indeed we are children of God, that we have eternal life. God, be our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.